As was mentioned already, how delightful we each no doubt feel for the blessing of God allowing us to assemble tonight. I'm reminded of those words in Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of mine heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. It is our humble plea and petition, no doubt, that all of the actions and even the thoughts that cross our mind will be acceptable and pleasing to God. And surely as we're assembled together tonight, we're so thankful for the privilege of gathering to honor Him. You may have noticed on the wall to my left, we will continue our series of lessons that we're devoting in the Sunday evenings to an attempt to know God better. In fact, the opening slide, or the very next slide, I suppose I should say, is one that briefly brings to our recollection some of what we've seen already. Our series has advanced already to the point where we first highlighted the significance of knowing God, how that in the sacred Word of God a tremendous blessing is awarded to those who do know Him and an eternal punishment to those who do not. For that reason, knowing God is essential, isn't it? As a part of that, we cast a spotlight upon the Godhead and appreciated God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the work of each one and the efforts by which the works of each are carried out, how the culmination is in fact in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Following that, we turned our attention to the remarkable name of God, understanding Yahweh and the power and the strength and the force attached to that name. With that in mind, we looked at the omniscience, the omnipresence, as well as the omnipotence of God, all three in terms of the greatness and infinity attached to them. With that said, we then looked at the judgment of God and found that God does always do that which is right, Genesis sixteen thirteen, And finally, last Sunday evening, we looked at God's love. That brings us tonight to a consideration of His mercy. The mercy of God. For the next few moments this evening, I would invite you to consider then with me a number of Bible passages that call upon us to appreciate the mercy of God, and not only His mercy, but the various ways in which the Scriptures lead us to appreciate it. As we begin, might we do so as follows. I've entitled this slide simply this, God is merciful. It would seem to me useful for us to at least begin the core part of our lesson by reminding ourselves of the marvelous mercy of the God of heaven. As we begin that consideration, first, let us basically ask what the word means. What's the thrust of it? What's the significance of this concept of mercy? The various words that are translated mercy seemingly focus very strongly upon the consideration of loving kindness and compassion. It seems on so many of the occasions then when the Scriptures and the King James translation at least make reference to mercy, they're making reference to the loving kindness as well as the compassion. If you and I shall but keep those thoughts in mind, it will aid us as we again look at a number of these verses and highlight some of the detailed specifics of them. I've often felt, though, that the following operational definition, in fact, might do us very, very much good. Many, many years ago, I heard a gospel preacher explain God's mercy and His grace. Those are two terms that often can at least be somewhat confusing. And often the human family, I suppose, has a tendency to interchange them when in fact the Bible does not interchange them. 
It defines them each in rather remarkable ways. Here is a definition for His mercy that I thought, in fact, does an extremely profound job. When you and I think about God's mercy, basically it appears to mean He does not give us what we deserve. If you keep that in mind, I think we certainly will see the converse of it used next Sunday night when we look at His grace. But for right now, the fact He does not give to me or to you what we justly deserve, that very fact is His mercy. As you and I develop it, why don't we begin like this? Quite frankly, in terms of its consideration relative to compassion and that of loving kindness, even human beings can, can show mercy. We find examples to be many in the Word of God, like in Judges 1.24, when there in the days of the Old Testament, there were some spies who on that occasion made a comment in conversation that if they were shown mercy, they would be treated well. Mercy shown by human beings. Perhaps the most famous example, though, that comes to your mind and mine is in the heart of the New Testament. In the 10th chapter of Luke, when on that occasion our Savior spoke of a good Samaritan, and you remember there was a man who was very much in dire straits. He had been beaten and robbed. A Levite and a priest, neither one showed him any mercy. However, there was a good Samaritan that passed by. And you and I well remember the Samaritan not only had concern for the man, but he even went out of his way to offer assistance and to offer help. The text says he showed mercy. Notice again the relationship to the compassion the good Samaritan showed as well as, of course, the loving kindness that he sacrificed in terms of his own means to help this poor traveler. Maybe in light of those things, you'll notice the Word of God on so many occasions, though, refers to the mercy of God, the marvelous compassion of the God of heaven. We will not nearly have the time tonight in our limited time to look at all the verses, but here are just a few of them. In Psalm 107, verse number 1, the psalmist, even as that particular psalm began, made reference to the goodness of God espoused and manifested in His mercy. His mercy endureth forever. Now that's a phrase that you and I shall quickly encounter a number of additional times. But as you look past that 107th psalm, you may immediately wonder, I made reference to Psalm 136, but there are no verse references to it. The reason is a, is a very fair one. The 136th Psalm has 26 verses in it, and every one of them references the mercy of God. Every one of the 26 verses of Psalm 136, they all make statements that close in the following way, His mercy endureth forever. And inasmuch as those statements are found, it reminds us one by one of the grandness of God's actions, not only in creation, but as well as specifically toward the human family. And in light of every one of them, the psalmist said, His mercy endureth forever. Surely, as you and I reflect upon the mercy of God, it is a somewhat overwhelming consideration, isn't it? The fact that He has not given to me what I justly deserve, He rather extends to me, and He makes available to me that which I have not earnestly and honestly earned. That's a marvelous consideration. That mercy brings us to notice 
that a number of other references directly attach the thought of mercy to God. As you and I make reference to the tabernacle, that interesting mobile place of worship found, of course, in the Old Testament, we remember that the central place in it in terms of the Ark of the Covenant over which was the very place in which God met with the children of Israel. And, of course, the name of that place is the mercy seat. Maybe this kind of lesson will give us a renewed appreciation of the fact that God met with Israel at a place called the mercy seat. Did He extend mercy to the children of Israel? Did He extend to them that for which honestly they had had no reason to expect? I believe you and I shall quickly find the answer to be yes. He was so merciful to them. Maybe that mercy brings us to notice a host of other examples. And again, I've been selective in some of the ones we shall notice. I mentioned the children of Israel. You and I in our Sunday morning studies in particular have highlighted a number of occasions in which they were rebellious. They were disobedient. They didn't trust in God. They were disbelieving. They were complainers. And yet in the midst of all of that, God still brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey. In the midst of all of that, nonetheless, He provided them a leader named Moses and later Joshua. Even despite all those rebellious acts which they in fact directed toward Him and toward His law and toward His way, He nonetheless preserved in them a remnant through which the entirety of the human family would be blessed. Merciful? Absolutely. That mercy which God, of course, extended to the children of Israel was not just a mercy that He extended early on, but what about in the days of David? In 2 Samuel 7, verses 15 and following, reference is made as on that occasion the God of heaven extended to David a remarkable set of prophecies. Those prophecies, quite frankly, will ultimately ebb down the stream of time until the very coming of the Son of God, Jesus, to the earth. In that passage, it expressly makes reference to God's mercy. Could it then be noted that as God orchestrated the affairs of time and prepared the world for the coming of the Christ, you and I remember it says in Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. As the fullness of time had come, notice we see the exposition of God's mercy. Not only in 2 Samuel 7, but in Zechariah chapter 10, we find another case much later in Old Testament history, again referring to the people of Israel and God's promises through them. How that through them would come the tremendous and great manifestation of His mercy. Another example. What about in the New Testament? The tender mercies of God that you and I should be thankful for every day. In the closing chapter of the book of James, James 5 verse 11, we remember another feature of that verse that probably comes to mind much quicker. It's a reference to the patience of Job. How frequently we remember in the Old Testament this gentleman who suffered so much. But yet that passage is a reminder of the perseverance that you and I should have because we are the recipients of His mercy. Oh, those tender mercies that God directs to you and to me. Maybe another example, 1 Peter 2, verse number 10. We remember in that context, there is an incredible reference to those who are Christians. 
those who are the priesthood of God today, namely you and me. And just surely as that priesthood is described, we are there said to again be the blessed beneficiaries of the mercy of God. Question, is it only because of God's mercy you and I can become a Christian? We can come to know the gospel and obey it with faith and confidence? Certainly the answer is yes. For after all, we find one final thought. It was one of the most frequent statements of the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? As he would start his letters, whether it be to Titus or whether it be to Timothy, a very frequent and common way of starting it was grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote then to those individuals of that first century, he made reference to the mercy of God extended to them. The fact that God did not give them what they deserved, but that through Christ they were such that they had access to the greatness of salvation and the blessing, of course, afforded through the Christ. That slide has been an attempt on the Bible's part through me, I suppose, to call upon us to reflect upon the frequent reference in the Bible of mercy, and specifically God's mercy. It is with that in mind that it seems we're prepared, though, to see where else those thoughts lead us. And may I then ask you to consider it in the following form. I mentioned earlier in the lesson that one way to consider at least this mercy of God is to give thought to the fact that He does not give us what we deserve. A number of occasions in the Old Testament seem fairly powerful to remind us of that truth. The children of Israel. I realize that we have studied that often in the Sunday morning class, but it seems as though the timing is so perfect to at least recollect it on this occasion as well. The children of Israel, as you turn with me to the 14th chapter of the book of Numbers, as long as we but recollect and mention some of the features, I think the idea is plain. The children of Israel had come out of Egyptian bondage, and they had done so by the very provision of God. Those plagues that God had brought upon the children, on the Egyptians, those plagues that He had used to torment the Egyptians, prompting them to allow His own people to leave. We remember, though, that less than two years later, those same people had crossed the Red Sea, and they had come to the very place known as Kadesh Barnea. They had come to the place of being ready to enter the Promised Land. They had come to the place whereby they, as long as they were believing and confident in God, could have entered the land and enjoyed the land flowing with milk and with honey. But you and I will remember what happened. Twelve spies were sent out. Those spies, easily, as they had gone through the land for 40 days, they came back and shared a remarkable record about what they had seen. They saw a land that was fertile, a land that was well watered and well provided, a land that was abundant in its capability of provision. They saw a land for which the produce that it provided was extensive. And yet, as they came back, ten of them said, We cannot take this land. Ten of them said, There are giants in it. These people are so numerous and many, we are unable to take it. Notice what happened. Here was a people who should have been confident, who should have been assured, who should have been trustworthy, but yet they did not believe. 
consider for a moment how do you suppose God might have reacted? Was He frustrated with them? Was He somewhat upset with their choice to disbelieve what He had done for them already? The promises He had made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The Bible reminds us in that very chapter, Numbers 14, that God was so angry with them that He was prepared to destroy them. And Moses and Aaron besought God on their behalf, pleading by way of intercession for them, and God spared them. Did God show them mercy? Did He extend to them perhaps what at that moment they had no reason to expect? God was merciful. And that manifestation perhaps leads you to note the next one. In Deuteronomy 13, verse 17, on this occasion... The people now were much closer to actually entering the land of Canaan after the additional years of wilderness wandering. But in Deuteronomy 13, 17, we notice something about the nature of the idolatrous activity that God forewarned them about. The land, you see, into which they were about to go was a land that was overwhelmed in idolatry. And God warned His people. Don't you ever, in fact, allow that idolatrous activity to be accepted by you because if you do, I will not show you any mercy. I'll destroy that city. I will, in fact, do that which you would appreciate as complete destruction. One more time, you notice, then as long as the people did respond and obey Him, God would extend His mercy and provide for them and protect them. You and I might even observe... Another example, in 2 Samuel 22, verse 51. This was a scene in which we find the record as it related to Saul and to David. I realize that as you and I think about Saul as the first king of Israel, he was an individual who had very many interesting characteristics. When he began his reign... Saul was a man who was directed to, after God. He was strong in his leadership and confident by his desire to obey the things of God. And God was with him. But the time came that Saul made a different selection, a different choice. He began to be arrogant and prideful and he began to be disobedient. And when he did, God said, I took my mercy from him. And we will remember what happened to Saul when that happened. He spiraled downward to his own destruction. Finally, we notice in 1 Samuel 31, he took his own life. Question, what happened when God removed his mercy? Saul was destroyed. He was removed from the kingship. God even promised him, I'm taking the kingship from you and your dynasty shall not continue and I'm giving it to a man better than you are. That's an amazing consideration. Look what happens when God removes his mercy. It leads to destruction. It leads to nowhere good. Maybe yet another example would be this one. In the book of Ezra as well as Nehemiah, we find a number of references to that great occasion in which God did extend His mercy. And notice the circumstances now. The people of God had been taken into captivity. They were there in Babylon as they were there for 70 years isn't it amazing to hear what the prophet said? Ezra commented, it's only because of God's mercy we're able to come back to Jerusalem. They were far away removed from their homeland and only because of God's mercy were they allowed to return. 
Only because of the loving kindness and compassion extended were they permitted to re-enter that place known as Jerusalem. God's mercy led to somewhere so sweet. But without it, as in the case of Saul, it led to somewhere so tragic. That kind of thought perhaps is highlighted in the words of Daniel. Daniel surely is a remarkable, remarkable man. In Daniel chapter 9, it would seem to me is the greatest prayer the Old Testament ever has recorded for us. In that chapter, we find Daniel praying unto God in recollection and reflection on the current circumstances. And as he prayed unto God, as he was thankful for the nature of God's mercy, it was only by virtue of that that he and the people could be forgiven and that they had the opportunity to enjoy his blessings one more time, not giving them what they deserved. God's people had been disobedient, and Daniel confessed the same. We have done wickedly, he cried, but yet thou hast been merciful to us. I suppose that you and I could echo similar sentiments today. It is with that in mind we come to the close of that slide. Two final references. One of them in the book of Micah, the other in the book of Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk spoke so strongly about the mercy of God extended to the children of Israel even in his day. And by now we have seen it from the days of the children of Israel all the way into the closing books of the Old Testament. There is no question about the mercy of God. No wonder then in Micah 7.18 it does quickly proclaim God delights in mercy. God finds pleasure in extended mercy. He finds favor in extending it. It's not something He's reluctant to do. You'll notice then if He delights in it. It's no wonder then that we find the greatest exposition of it not in the days of the Old Testament, but in the days of the New Testament, under the fine covenant beneath which you and I serve today. No wonder then, why don't we then come to the mercy that the God of heaven extends through the person and through the blessings available through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remarkable indeed, isn't it, that as God extended His mercy in the Old Testament, He made the way and prepared for the coming of the very one through whom His mercy would be so abundantly represented. As you notice at the start of that slide, we are now in position, of course, to appreciate that the mercy extended by God is at His discretion. More than once in the Word of God, the Bible tells us He will extend mercy to whom He will, and He will not extend it to those who, who He chooses not to. Whether God chooses to extend His mercy is His will. Just like those children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, had God chosen not to extend mercy, He could have destroyed them then. But He chose to extend His mercy. Sure enough, in Romans 9.16, the Apostle Paul echoed the sentiment that God's extension of mercy rests with His will. Thanks be unto God, can you and I forever be, that He has chosen to extend His mercy to us. And you and I will begin to notice that so many examples are found. Sometimes they're even in the physical realm. What was it that Paul stated relative to Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2? Epaphroditus, you and I well, may well recall, was a gentleman who in his service to the God of heaven 
And despite that, he had become ill. He had become sick. Paul even commented it was a sickness unto death. This was a sickness that will result in his passing. And yet Paul was quick to proclaim God extended mercy to him. And Epaphroditus lived. Today, sometimes it can be in the realm that's physical that the God of heaven may extend to you and to me a remarkable consideration of mercy to the point where what human doctors may think is impossible is not so with God. For with God all things are possible, to quote Matthew 19, 26. And His mercy may often touch your physical life and mine in ways that we may not even fully understand. But that mercy of God seen in a case like that one brings us very quickly to the spiritual realm, doesn't it? The spiritual realm. When you and I consider that realm that is the spiritual, we see by far the greatest exposition of His mercy, do we not? One by one, look at what Paul affirmed in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and following. Paul was so quick to describe his own lot. He said, I was the chiefest of sinners. He no doubt recollected so easily the fact that he persecuted Christians to the death in Acts chapter 9. It was he who held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. It was he who seemingly expended great energy, effort, and eagerness to try and destroy this way known as Christianity. Paul said, I was the chiefest of sinners. But in the very next breath, he could say, God extended me mercy. He allowed me to be brought into the fold of Christianity and by my obedience to the gospel, I could be one of his chiefest proponents. He extended me mercy. Paul could say that. Not only could he make that statement. What about that powerful commentary of Romans eleven thirty two? Near the close of that 11th chapter of Romans, Paul spoke again about the mercy of God and the great extent of it. And he stated it in language like this, It's God's desire that everyone may experience His mercy. Now please notice the statement. If God would have His way in everything, every person would appreciate and understand that mercy but Paul was quick to comment in that same Roman letter, not everyone will be the eternal recipient of His mercy because not everyone will obey Him. Not everyone will do that which is the will of God. Not everyone will be a faithful child of His. Notice again, God promises to extend His mercy, but He promises to extend it to some in this New Testament era. That some you and I are about to see fully developed. Every individual has sinned. Everyone who's reached the age of an accountability has been guilty of sin. Romans 3.23 highlights it in words as profound as this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. John stated it like this in 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. If any man say he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. If any one of us were to claim, I've never sinned, we immediately know if we have the opportunity to hear that statement that that person is lying. All of us have been guilty in one way or another, one time or another, maybe many times on many occasions, of transgressing the will of God. 
And as such, we've become guilty of that which the Bible calls sin. That concept in sin then leads us to note this. What is the penalty for sin? The Bible again is very clear, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin, that is to say its consequence, its inevitable result is death. Now we know that Adam and Eve died physically. Ultimately that sentence of death that came upon them by their removal from the tree of life brought their physical demise and their death. A far greater concern was their spiritual death, their separation from God, their removal from all the blessings of association with Him. May we say that when you and I are guilty of sin, the same thing can be said of us. We are thus sentenced to death. And if it were not for God's mercy, that's how the story would end. Not only would we die physically, but we'll die eternally being forever separated from Him. You notice again, God's mercy, He does not give me what I deserve. As a sinner, I deserve death, plain and simple. And you are the same. But thanks be unto God, His mercy is extended in such a way that death need not be the final result because though we must die physically, Revelation chapter 20 describes the fact that though we must pass through that veil if the Lord delay is coming, we know that we shall in fact be absent from the second death. And that's the serious one. Eternally cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone, the second death spoken of in Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6. If we're in the family of God, thanks be unto His mercy, we're not subject to the second death. No wonder then in light of that, consider the fearfulness attached to falling into the hands of an angry God. Hebrews 10 verse 31 and Hebrews 12 verse 29 both speak about how fearful and how frightening a consideration that ought to be to fall into the hands of an angry God, one who will not bestow His mercy on an individual. Surely in light of those things, how sweet it is to give appreciation and thought to the salvation that He offers. The last set of considerations of the lesson, I hope, like a lens, will focus the mercy of God and see how the Word of God presents it to us with such power and such sweetness. We've hinted at it already, just as Paul did, that though he was the chiefest of sinners, he was thankful for God's mercy extended through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look with me at these verses. In Titus chapter 3, verse number 5, we find on that occasion Paul discussing salvation. That point of discussion led him to comment that that salvation is due only due to the mercy of God. There isn't a single one of us that could ever be saved were it not for God's mercy. Because we deserve death. We're sinners. And if He gave us what we deserve, that is how we would end up eternally. But thanks to His mercy, He sent His Son to procure for us the availability and opportunity of what we could never have made available by ourselves. That salvation offered through Christ brings us to that penetrating passage in Romans chapter 5. 
Beginning in the sixth verse of that chapter, Paul reflected on some thoughts that challenge you and me even tonight as we think about the mercy of God. He commented about the strength available through God in words like this. Isn't it true? God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the eighth verse of that chapter. God was under no obligation of His own volition to offer the Christ, but He did. He chose to extend mercy through those that would obey that gospel of Jesus Christ, and He hasn't promised to extend it to anybody else. Doesn't that make the power of the church all the more clear? Those who are in the church then are Christians and they are the ones covered in the blood of Christ and they are the ones whose name is in the book of life and they are the ones to whom God has promised as His elect to extend His mercy. 1 Peter 1 verses 2 and 3. That means if we aren't faithful Christians, we shall not receive His mercy. Because Christ, though He's shed His blood that all might have the opportunity, it's only those who've responded to that. And it's only those who have given their life in open obedience to the commandments of the Master who shall receive that great mercy of God. Surely these verses help us realize that that's the reason Jesus came. In Luke 1 verse 72, even prior to the Lord's birth, the promises there vouchsafed to Zechariah spoke about the nature of the one coming who would extend the mercy of God, yea, to all who would be the recipients thereof. Not only in Luke 1 verse 72, listen to the words of the Master Himself. In John 14, 6, I, He said, am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. Surely as Jesus made a statement like that one, as exclusive as it sounds and as direct as it is, it is a statement of manifestation of God's mercy directed. If you want to come to God, it's only through Christ it can happen. For indeed, neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 4 tells us. As these statements remind us, of what's available through Jesus, which of course is the statement of God's mercy. This reminder is now seen. It is a statement found in the book of Jude. I find it interesting that last Sunday evening, the lesson text was Jude chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. That passage made reference to the love of God, but it also makes reference to the mercy of God and they are intertwined and linked in a fantastically profound way. God's love, as it will be eternally shared upon those who are in His mercy, are those, of course, who've received His love and who have obeyed Him in faith. No wonder we're admonished not only to keep yourself in the love of God, but that mercy, of course, is highlighted in such a way you and I are commanded to look for that mercy. I suppose many in our world might struggle with that verse. They might think, isn't God's mercy everywhere available to everybody? And the answer is no. If you and I have to look for it, it is something that of course can be found. And it's found in the gospel of our Savior. It's found in obeying, obeying His commandments and being a faithful child of His. Surely then the lesson concludes 
with that verse that was read in our hearing earlier tonight. Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 4 through 6. I could find no more remarkable way than this one to sum up all that we've learned tonight. Listen to how Paul describes the mercy of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding greatness or the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So much is thus stated in that little array of verses. God was rich in mercy, but it was extended through Christ Jesus. Have you obeyed Christ Jesus? If so, then you know that God's mercy has been directed to you. Your sins were washed away and you're able to walk daily in the sunlit blessing of the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You realize what strength and power daily you can understand because of that. But may I say, if you have never entered Christ, remember you only enter Him in baptism, according to Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you then have not been baptized, if you haven't initially obeyed the gospel, at this point you have at least rejected God's mercy. And friend, you don't want to receive what you really deserve, do you? You want God to extend to you what you do not deserve. Although that will be the prime topic of the lesson next Sunday night, I hope you'll come and hear as we discuss that as well. Tonight, if you need, though, to obey the gospel, we'd be delighted in just a few moments to assist and to help you in that. But if you need to return to your first love, we'd be honored to pray for you. The gospel invitation is extended, and if anyone would wish to come, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.